Good evening, everyone. This is Iron Will, and I am back with another book review. Um, I got to tell you that uh, this book, uh, this book took me completely by surprise because I was, I didn't know what it was about. Is what I was trying to say there. And this book is called The Five Thousand Year Leap. The Miracle, a miracle that changed the world. Um, this is part of the Principles of Freedom series um, from the, uh, hold on a second here, uh, the National Center for Constitutional Studies. This is written by a man called uh, W. Cleon Skousen, who is, was, he has passed on since many years since, um, he wrote this as kind of a primer on why the Constitution was written and framed the way it was based on the knowledge, the writings, the information that was had by the founding fathers in these, the United States of America, which are once the, uh, the British colonies. And... I got to tell you that um, this book stirred my soul. And the reason is, is um, because it hits right at the heart of the American founding. Um, Early on in in his book, as he as he really starts into it in what he calls part one, structuring a new government, he talks about the people of Israel and he talks about the Anglo-Saxons, the original people that uh, were in uh, what is England and the laws that they had and how similar they were, that Government was government solved problems at the lowest level possible. Meaning, if it was a neighborhood thing, it was a neighborhood thing. If it was a a city thing, it was a city thing. If it was a couple communities, then it was a couple communities that were getting together. And this really, really kind of blew me away um, because. There was, there was really, like an Anglo-Saxon law, there was really only four crimes, and it was all considered treason. Uh, and if you committed those crimes, the punishment was death. Hey, Hakeem, thanks for joining me here tonight, um, or morning, wherever you are in the world right now. So... As many of you guys, well, actually, i got to stop assuming that because this is a, not just a U.S. platform. Um, as some of you may know, that the, uh, the Americans first created a constitution with a very weak federal government. And they then went on to create a second constitution, which was... Um, ratified in 1787, I believe, 
Um, and that, that government was much stronger. Um, and so let me, let me, let me see if I can get this in the camera. Um, so you guys can see it. Okay. So that diagram right there, that diagram is the concept that the founders had for America and that, that the family would be the first place where, um, where issues would be handled. And then in the township and the county government and in the state government and the, the balance or what they called the people's law was a pull between both the ruler's law or rule by king or dictatorship and no law or complete anarchy. And, and well, I should say complete tyranny or complete anarchy. And they really just got into, he, he really just gets into kind of the weeds a little bit about what some of that original thinking was. One of the things that stood out to me in this first part is this line here. If a nation expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization, it expects what never was and never will be. And that is from Thomas Jefferson. One of the things that the founders firmly believed in was uh, a basic education. What up until maybe the 50s was reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, and if you're not familiar with that last term, that's arithmetic, as in maths or math, depending on what, where you're from. And this allowed an individual to be literate, to be able to handle basic math, um, and then pursue their own education, their own interests, which is something that in my own pursuit in life has really driven me to, to the career I'm in right now and to my pursuit of knowledge, which is what's bringing you guys these book reviews. So... Um, they did not codify or put into it, it written in the constitution anywhere that there should be this certain educational structure because everything was run so much at the local level, at the townships, at the neighborhoods, um, and people really provided, um, for those local forms of government, if you will, um, by being actively engaged. And so this book, excuse me, this book covers 28 principles. Um, and I, I don't know that I'm going to hit them all. I don't know that I'm going to hit a third or a quarter of them. I'm just going to kind of keep one eye on the time here and see how long this goes. So the first principle that he writes about is the only reliable basis for sound government and just human relations is natural law. And right now in the United States, there's a huge debate over parts of natural law. And the one that's kind of at the, the actually, there's two really at the forefront. One is um, freedom of speech. And two is 
the right of self-defense, which we have codified as the Second Amendment. And one of those things that they cover is that this natural law is, is somewhat observable in nature, okay? Every creature has the right to defend itself, to live um, in its own way in nature. And really, the, a lot of their, their founding principles came out of what was called English common law. And what that goes back to is the Anglo-Saxon laws um, where self-defense was a legitimate form of of um, protecting yourself and your family. And it was expected that as a man, you protected your family. Um, now, there there are some traditions uh, in, in Europe where women fought. Um, I'm, not, I'm not discluding that. I'm just kind of focusing on the English tradition and where that kind of comes out of. And one of the things that Cicero wrote about who was from ancient Greece um, is that reason is a divine gift, okay? And one of, one of the things that he says here is Cicero had comprehended the magnificence of the first great commandment to love, respect, and obey the all-wise creator. He put this precept in proper perspective by saying that God's law is right reason. When perfectly understood, it is called wisdom. When applied by government in relating human relations, it is called justice. When people unite together in a covenant or compact under the law, they become a true commonwealth. And since they intend to administer their affairs under God's law, they belong to his commonwealth. So Cicero, who, who was not a Christian, who was not a, um, a Muslim, who was not uh, a Buddhist or a Hindu or anything, recognized that there was a creator, okay? And he put forth that this longstanding wisdom is ties back to the great creator of the world and the universe. Um, so one of the things that he says, that Cicero said, is that so to Cicero, the glue which holds a body of human beings together in the commonwealth of a just society is love. Love of God, love of God's great law of justice, and love of one's fellow man, which provides the desire to promote true justice among mankind. Meaning that if, if my son wronged a neighbor, then we would make it right. Okay, and a really good example of this is I have a friend who used to live in this community many years ago, and his son had an accident and ran into a farmer's fence. And so they went back to the farmer. They said, hey, um, we would like to rebuild your fence for you uh, as part of my son's restitution process, making things right. So um, they did that. And really what the concept was and, and what not that you had romantic love, but you had filial or brotherly love, love of other people. And you recognize them as a human being, and you recognize that they deserved some of that um, respect and that and love 
feel feel blah, 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 brotherly love. It's kind of what I think of, really. Um, if we're if we're all children of God, then that would be brotherly love. So he goes through this this principle, and this talks kind of about some of Cicero's ideas and concepts, and really lays out um, some of the natural law concepts that Cicero wrote about and talked about. Okay, um, unalienable rights. Um, is based on natural law. And, uh, you know what? I'm not, you know what? I'm not going to read them. There, there's like 22 here. Um, but here's the point is that there were certain things that lined up with Cicero's beliefs and understandings and his watching how things went in those times, um, that he kind of codified and put together uh, these concepts. Um, the second principle is a free people cannot survive under a Republican constitution unless they remain virtuous and morally strong. So part of this whole concept and what, what I remember learning in school about public virtue is really that concept of you care more about your fellow man You care more about your community um, as a whole than elevating yourself um, by stealing from your community. So, and the these, a lot of these concepts are codified in the Ten Commandments that, that not only Cicero talked about, but also that were a part of um, the Anglo-Saxon law and the structuring that was there. So, one thing that Thomas Paine wrote was there is a spirit of equality and public virtue unheard of in other nations because the people of America are a people of prosperity, of property, excuse me. Almost every man is a freeholder. Basically that that many of the men owned land. And at the time that was the custom um, that the father, the, the man of the house uh, owned the land. And um, if the son was old enough, then the mother would be kind of his assistant and he could take over management. Um, and in some cases, you know, an uncle would come and live and manage properties or things um, so that they stayed in the family. There was just different things about and, and owning property was um, very important in in, the, in that culture in the early Americas. Um one of the things that, that James Madison wrote was to suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without any virtue in the people is a chimerical idea. Meaning it, it's two different beasts mixed together and it's it's not really something that works out. Um, because the, the, the public virtue um, aspect of this is that the person is more interested in the benefit of the community as a whole over their own self-interests. And um, I think we definitely see today in the world that there are many politicians that are not really there for the American people or for whatever country you may be in. Um, there are dictators there are people that manipulate the laws in their different places, um, different countries. 
regions to make sure that they maintain power. And I'm, I want you to understand, I'm not pointing fingers because I don't know all the details of everyone's country. I just know that where I am at, um, it definitely looks like there are many politicians that are in it for themselves. Um, and that's my opinion. I don't have any facts. So one of the things that was really important is that these founders believed and encouraged people to be them, their best version of themselves, which is something I talk about all the time. The reason I post the quotes, the reason I, I do the book reviews is to helpfully encourage you to invest in yourself by adding knowledge, by bringing additional knowledge. James Adams said, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and a righteous people, a religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Meaning that you didn't have to necessarily be a Christian, but that you could be part of a faith that has certain principles as their founding. And one of the things that Ben Franklin talks about, um, actually, in a couple of principles, um, is about these five ideas. I'll, I'll, I'll actually read those out because um, I call them the five, I, the five, um, the five points of American theology. And, and in reality, um, they were viewed in many. They're viewed in many, many religions. If you boil things down to some of the most basic and um, direct precepts. So, all right, principle three. The most promising method of securing a virtuous and moral stable people is to elect virtuous leaders. You know, I'm just going to jump into the next reading. Okay, it says, uh, so Samuel Adams said, Therefore, it is the truest friend of liberty of his country who tries most to promote its virtue and who so far as his power and influence extend will not suffer a man to be chosen into any office of power and trust who is not wise and not a wise and virtuous man. Not all of the founders were old men when this process started in 17... 60s and 1770s. There were some that were. What they did have, though, is borrowed knowledge because they studied the writings of John Locke, of Cicero, of Montesquieu, um, of, of religious and political people that came before them so they could get a better understanding of how best to govern themselves. Because what most people don't don't understand or realize is that Americans were governing themselves as early as the 1500s. Um, I don't have an exact date uh, of when that started, but there was a Virginia colony that came over. And then there was um, the one that we really hail the most, which is the Plymouth colonies. And they came over in like the early, oh, I want to say early 1600s. 1620s coming to mind, but I I cannot tell you exactly if that's the right year or not.
but they're they they govern themselves. They they were a religious people. Many many of them that came to the to the Americas in the early years were religious, and they were leaving Europe because of religious persecution. In many cases, the Quakers that settled Pennsylvania, uh, where my family hails from, were leaving persecution. The um, Pilgrims or Puritans, as they are sometimes called. Uh, left England because they were being persecuted. So um, there, there's a whole reason there why when things came about the way they did, Americans had really strong feelings. They had been studying and seeking to learn and understand. Now, this comes out of the Federalist Papers, excuse me, um, which is a book I have not yet read. Uh, but there's two, there's two sets of, of, there's two books. There's the Federalist Papers, and then there's the Anti-Federalist Papers. And, and they were both written, um, arguing for and against the, the Constitution of the United States. And, and in those, in those Federalist Papers, um, one of the things that came out of it is something that Madison wrote, all right? And what it says is, If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. And, and what he is really trying to convey here is that we are not perfect. And that we are mortal. We make mistakes. We are fallible. We are nowhere near the level of our creator. And one of the things that the founders really did not like was the like the French aristocracy. I probably just butchered that. The French aristocratic um, lords and ladies, as well as the, the kings. Um, England did have some with the Parliament, uh, but they really focused more on on King George and um, him not governing and, and honoring some of the treaties that helped found these colonies in the Americas. Um, Jefferson wrote that there is a natural aristocracy among men. The grounds of this are virtue and talents. There are also, there is also an artificial aristocracy, aristocracy, aristocracy founded on wealth and birth without either virtue or talents. For those who it would belong to the first class, the natural aristocracy is considered, I consider as the most precious gift of nature for the instruction, the trust and government of society. Meaning that, a good man, a good woman, was better for a nation than one that inherited titles. Okay. Um, there, there's so much in here in this in this third principle about this concept 
that they really just kind of go over it in a couple different ways. Or I should say he goes over it in a couple of different ways, quoting many of the founders and putting in um, putting it in different words. So that way we can have a better understanding of what's being said. That's how I feel about it. So um, he goes on to say that throughout their writings and speeches, the founders project themselves as positive believers in a broad spectrum of fundamental precepts, which they called self-evident truths. These beliefs are remarkable in and of themselves, but the fact that they were all that they all seem to have shared them in common is even more remarkable. And he goes on to kind of to extrapolate this, um, that it was because of their readings, the things that they were studying, and that they were seeking to understand the mistakes that were made in other countries, in other civilizations. Because when you, when you get to the 1770s, Rome and Greece have been gone a long time by then. I mean, a long time. So, excuse me. Sorry about that. All right, principle number four. Without religion, the government of a free people cannot be maintained. And what they saw, and this gets into the formal education, okay? Um, that formal education was to include among its responsibilities, the teaching of three important subjects, religion, which might be defined as a fundamental system of beliefs concerning man's origin and relationships to the cosmic universe, as well as the relationship to his fellow man. So, I only really know the biblical, and that is that we are all created by God. So we're all brothers and sisters. This is the which may be described as a standard wishing right from wrong knowledge, which is an intellectual awareness and understanding any experience or in I geography science or that uh, wow I'm really I really got the ons tonight so one of the things they wanted to focus on, too, is that no religion would be required. In other words, you couldn't say you had to teach um, Christianity. You had to teach um, Buddhism. You had to teach... Uh, and you just had to teach these broad principles that really cover faith. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to go right to it right now. I thought it was in the next, the next principle. It is right here. And these are the five fundamental points to be taught in school about religion, okay? These are the words of Franklin, but they're also similar to what many of the founders wrote. And I believe in here he quotes uh, Samuel Adams, 
Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and I think I think there's another one, and I don't. I'm I'm, not, I'm just looking on this one page right now. So point one: there exists a Creator who made all things, and mankind should recognize and worship Him. Number two: the Creator has revealed a moral code of behavior for happy living, which distinguishes right from wrong. The Creator holds mankind responsible for the way they treat each other. Four: all mankind live beyond this life. Five: in the next life, mankind are judged for their conduct in this one. Now, if you're kind of freaking out about mankind, understand that man and mankind was used as a universal term for human beings. Okay? It, it was very common in the 1600s for those terms to be used instead of humans, mankind. Because while there was a lot of discussion and there were heated uh, arguments, especially amongst the founders and those that formed the, the Constitution of the United States. Of the United States um, they recognized man as one species. Flat out. I know there's people that argue differently, but I'm, I'm just telling you from, from the studying and reading I've, I've gone through, that is, that is absolutely the case is mankind is a species just like jaguars are a species just like black panthers are jaguars just like um lions are a species tigers are a species okay so that's how we that's how they were viewed because we're all children of god Whew. all right you know what? I'm gonna wrap this up on principle number four because obviously I'm I'm not keeping all right. Religion in America takes no direct part in government of society, but it must be regulated regarded as the first of their political institutions. I do not know whether all Americans have a sincere faith in their religion. For who can search the human heart? But I am certain that they hold it to be indispensable to the maintenance of Republican institutions. This opinion is not particular to a class of citizens or to a party, but it belongs to the whole nation and to every rank of society. Hey, Bonnie. Um, so look. Americans of all walks of life had a faith in their creator. I know in a lot of their public writings, the founders did not talk openly because they were more, more focused on government and on the political issues of the day than faith. And as you study their personal writings, you see that come out. Oh my goodness gracious. And that is, that is from um, Alex de Tocqueville who wrote Democracy in America. In the 1800s. Uh, boy, I want to say that was published in the 1820s or 18... Somewhere between like 1820s and 1840s. So, the Tocqueville goes on to say that in France, I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching in opposite directions. But in America, I found they were intimately united. So, what I have learned from studying the Bible and from studying Holy Word 
is that the spirit of freedom is the spirit of God and that they go together. And so what de Tocqueville saw was that these different denominations recognized that there was a creator and that he was an active part in their daily lives. And one of the things that I think we today have gotten separated from is that concept that we are accountable to God for the things that we do in this life. Okay? And that is that is universal. That is why Benjamin Franklin penned those five principles. That is why Washington Adams and Jefferson, Samuel Adams, not John Adams. Um, actually, John Adams has it, has it here too. So both Samuel and John, um, because it's how they saw the world. It's how they understood the religions of the world. That when you boil them down to the five basic tenets, those were it. So we're, we're all connected. All people of faith share those five principles. So there's common ground for us to start on, I'd say. All right. So um, the Tocqueville wrote about religion in school. Um, and it's covered here a little bit. Um, talks about the, the role of American clergy, how they encouraged people to be active politically. A lot of times in, in communities, uh, they would gather at one of the churches to discuss the business of the town and the community. And everybody that owned land was required to be at the meeting. And you could, you could not miss with some exceptions. And then you were expected to send somebody to, to at least voice your concerns who may not be able to vote in, in the group, but could at least speak out. Um, so one of the things that, that, uh, that scows and pens here is in other words, there was separation of church and state, but not separation of state and religion. So it was expected by the founders that Americans would be a religious people, that they would exercise their faith in God and in, in whatever form that would be in. They expected that and they expected that to continue. Um, the Tocqueville also wrote, I saw for the greatness and genius of America in her com commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless prairies, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. Not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her greatness, of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America never ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And really, I believe that 100%. That the reason that America stands, as Ronald Reagan once said, as a shining city on a hill, is because for two centuries at least, we were a mortal people. And we led the world by being a moral people. Not that we would preach, not that we'd force our beliefs on others, but that we, we stood as a good example 
um, for other nations. And, and if you look, since our Constitution was penned, there have been, and I don't know the number, many, many Constitutions written after its effect. Um, one of the things I like to remind people is that the the entire United States government was was framed in like eighteen pages, eighteen pages, and part of that is because most of the government function was at the federal level, it was not at the national level, it was at the local communities, it was at the counties, it was at the state level, and really. That's where it belongs because that's where it impacts the most people directly. Um, it is why many faiths tell their people to get involved. Not that they have to run for office, but that they need to be politically involved so that they can espouse their own beliefs and ideas and build, build people up or vote for people that follow along those same precepts and concepts. So what I'm going to say may offend some, but we here in the United States have a government which we deserve. Because as a people, I don't think we've done a very good job of electing good people. And and I hold myself accountable. Um, I need to do a better job, especially for my local politics. So, all right. So, the, the big concept here is, in this, is that the founders believed Americans would be a moral people, that they would be a good people. And um, there's a lot more to this book. So, look guys, what I just want to say, put out there to you, is this. Quite simply... Um, pick up a book, not a novel, not a book of short stories, pick up a nonfiction book. Um, I want to thank you for joining me tonight. And if you enjoyed this video, please like, and share it. And if you're looking for someone to help you level up your leadership skills, that is what I do. That is what we do at Turning Leaf Solutions. And you can find us at turningleafs.com. Um, it's a great read, uh, whether you're in America or not. Um, guys, I'll be back next week with another book review. Um, and it's going to be part two of the 5,000-year leap. So, my friends, I hope you guys go out and make it a great weekend. And I will talk to you later. Bye.